Hey, what's up, everybody? So in case you don't know me, I'm Luke, and really excited to continue in our series through 2 Timothy this morning. Our series title has been Rise Above, and today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to rise above what other people think about you, okay? And what other place were we worried about what other people thought of us then in high school? Am I the only one who that was like the time where I was thinking about what are people thinking and saying and perceiving of me? Um, And high school really for me was a time where my self-image fluctuated like crazy. It was like a roller coaster. Like for example, in March of my senior year, I qualified for the state tournament for wrestling for Colerain High School. So if you really knew me, you'd know that I sat the bench in football, but wrestling was my sport. And so I qualified for the state tournament. And what was really cool is they had my family come in and then they called all of the kids down from every class and, they, we, and all the students just lined the hallways. And as I was walking out of my class to go to my van, which was going to drive me to Columbus for the state tournament, 400 of my classmates were all like cheering and clapping and Actually, more than that. There's thousands, probably. And (laughs) tens of thousands. (laughs) Anyways, a lot of of people were there. And man, talk about my self-image being bolstered. It was just incredible to be sent off by my my whole school. But then, two months later, when it came time in May to ask a girl out to the prom, my one senior prom... I didn't ask anyone because I didn't have the confidence to do it. And so it was just, it was this weird time where my self-image was like constantly going up and down and up and down. Maybe you can relate to that. And I know that sometimes in high school, I would really obsess over what other people were thinking about me. That's like, I would zone in on that and everything that I would do on a day-to-day basis would be influenced by what other people thought. But then... There'd be times where I would say, okay, no, I don't care about what people think anymore. And then I would try really hard to prove to everyone that I don't care what you think about me. And really, I still cared. I was just manifesting it in a different way. And so I remember that there are a number of ways that kids would try to deal with people's perceptions in high school. Some would hide who they really were. If you knew what I was really like. If you knew who I really was, if you knew what I really liked to do, then you would reject me. And so I'm just going to hide who I am. Maybe you were a hider in high school. Some fiercely fought to control everyone else's perceptions. So everything they did, they had, what are other people going to think in mind? And they kind of had this like ironclad control over everyone's perceptions of them. This mask, this neatly crafted mask that they made. And those are the kind of people that would just totally melt down when that stuff would be exposed and they would no longer be in control of what other people were thinking about them. Other people, they let um, the perceptions of others define their self-image and define their self-worth. Their value depended upon what other people thought of them. And then some people just became really inconsiderate people. They were like, I don't care what anyone thinks about me, and I'm going to make sure they all know it. And that wasn't good either. And so the question I was thinking about as I was preparing this message is, what would my life have been like if, just say twice a day throughout my high school career, 
I would have asked God, God, what do you think about this situation? What are you thinking about me right now? Like as I was going through high school and when, or maybe when you were going through high school and you got turned down for the prom or maybe um, no one asked you or someone made fun of your outfit, all this, you know, all this stuff that happens in high school. Like what would have been different about your high school experience if just twice a day, just twice a day, you would have asked God, God, what do you think about this right now? But what I want to ask you now is, how would your life change now if you ask God twice a day? What are you thinking about this situation? How would my life be different right now if I was taking time throughout my day to intentionally be like, okay, I know what other people are thinking about this. I know what I'm thinking about this. God, what are you thinking about this? And I think this is at the heart of getting freedom from living by other people's perceptions. It's um, not caring what they think because you care so much about what God thinks. And so really... What I want to ask you is, what is the driving force in your life right now? We're all going to, at times, take a second to be concerned about what other people are thinking, and it's good sometimes. But what is the driving force in your life right now? What God thinks or what other people think? And that's the question that, and that's the topic that Paul is getting at in this section of 2 Timothy that we're going to read. So we're going to read verses 12 through 18 now, if you would like to turn there with me. It's not going to be up on the screen, so you can either listen, or if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, go for it. But here we go. 2 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 18. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul, right there towards the end, he's recalling some people. And some of these people had kind of disassociated from him. You know, it really felt like betrayal to him. And this other guy, Onesiphorus, had stuck by his side. And as I was thinking about this, maybe you can agree with me that when you've been betrayed by a close friend, like when there was someone that you trusted and you really believed they had your back, but then when things got hard or when things got inconvenient or where there was some reason why they didn't want to associate with you anymore, they kind of turn their back on you. When you've experienced that, you have all the more appreciation for the people that have stuck by your side. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's like, hey, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they didn't want to be associated with me anymore. You might ask, well, why didn't they? Probably because they didn't want, because they knew what came with being associated with Paul. Like they knew what people would think about them if they knew they were associated with Paul, they would think that they were Christians, they loved Jesus, that they were all about the gospel. 
And in Rome, not only does that mean that you were kind of stupid and ignorant and, wow, why would you really believe this like, weird new teaching by this guy named Jesus who's dead? Not only would it be embarrassing, but you could also get killed and imprisoned for being a Christian and following Jesus. And so these guys didn't want to be associated with Paul because they were worried what other people would think about them, what they'd do to them if they knew. And so um, Paul is like, hey, they abandoned me, but he shows that he's all the more grateful and encouraged by Onesiphorus who stuck by his side, even though he knew what it meant and actually came to the prison and encouraged him in Rome. Can't get, you can't show your loyalty and faithfulness to Paul any more than literally coming up to the prison door and encouraging him. So, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they disassociated from Paul. Onesiphorus, he, stick, he stuck with Paul. And it was risky to associate with Paul. And for uh, Paul, it was risky for him to associate with Jesus. And it still is risky to associate with Jesus in a lot of ways for us in our culture, although it looks a little differently. And so that risk is what Paul was getting at in verse 12. It was the first verse that we read. Let me read it one more time. This is 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Stop there. What's he talking about when he says for this reason? He's talking about verse 11, which Sarah talked about last week. And by the way, can we just give it up for Sarah, how amazing of a message that was? crazy the caliber of teachers that we get to, I get to work with here at this church. It's awesome. So anyways, verse 11, which she ended with last week was Paul saying this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And then he says in, in verse 12, for this reason, I suffer. So because he was an apostle of Jesus, because he's a teacher, because he was associated with Jesus, that is why Paul suffered. But despite his suffering, he says this, but I am not ashamed. I suffer these things. I'm in prison. I'm embarrassed. I'm being persecuted, perhaps tortured, but I am not ashamed. Being ashamed is an interesting thing because when we read about Paul's experience being ashamed, it was him literally being imprisoned, and that's not something that most of us in this room, if not any of us, can identify with. Like, what does it look like for us to be ashamed? All that I think of immediately is, again, going back to high school, when in high school I didn't want anyone to know that I was a Christian or go to church because of what that would mean about me. But when we're talking about being ashamed, The definition that I want to use is this, and I think it will shed more light on actually the root of what it is to be ashamed. So being ashamed is just this, choosing not to fully express my faith in Jesus because of something I anticipate other people will perceive of me. So it's not even what I know they're going to perceive of me, it's just what I think they're going to think of me. I'm not going to raise my hands in worship because I wonder what people are going to think of me if I do that. I'm not going to share my faith with one of my family members that needs Jesus because what are they going to think of me if I do that? I'm not going to share what I really think in fill in the blank conversation 
that people are having around me because what are they going to think when I say what I really believe? And so really, as I kind of expose the root of being ashamed of the gospel is just being overly concerned about what other people think. And so Paul, he says, I am not ashamed. And what he's really saying is, I am secure in my faith in Jesus. What other people think don't restrain me from expressing my faith in him. What about for you? Does other people's perceptions restrain your faith in Jesus in any way? Probably not in this room. Maybe for some of you in this room. Maybe some of you wish that you could be more expressive in worship, but you don't because you're worried about what other people are thinking. And by the way, you're not more spiritual or more Christian if you are more expressive in worship. Raising your hands and jumping and dancing and whatever else doesn't mean you love God more. And so really God's created all of us um, in unique ways and all of us have unique expressions to God that we love him. But if the reason you're not raising your hands is because you're worried about what other people are thinking, if you actually would want to, but you aren't doing it because you are worried about what other people think, then that is an example of being ashamed of Jesus. And it sounds really harsh, but really, when it comes down to it, the root of being ashamed of Jesus and being ashamed of the gospel is just being overly concerned about what other people think. So Paul, he isn't ashamed. But two kind of traps we can fall into when we care too much about what other people think are, I like to kind of describe them as two kinds of, uh, two actions. First one is overanalyzing. And the second one is overcompensating. When we care too much about what other people think, we tend to either overanalyze or overcompensate. So let's start with overanalyzing. Overanalyzing is obsessing over the possible results of what I do. It is thinking about, okay, if I were to say this, if I were to do this, then this might happen, and this might happen, and this might happen, and this might happen, and this might happen, and, happen, and then I'll die. I seriously, like, every, like, when I first started sharing my faith with people other than other Christians, I would overanalyze to death the potential outcome of the experience. I would be thinking to myself, okay, um, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell them that I just want, I just, I'm just going to walk up to the person and say, hey, I just want you to know that God loves you. And then I'm thinking, I'm like imagining in my mind them getting like so outrageously offended that they boldly declare their atheism right there on the spot. And then for the rest of their life, they look back to that moment as like the defining moment when their atheism was solidified. Like that, I've literally thought that way before. And, and so when you overanalyze, you're just like imagining the worst case scenario. And, and what it does what it does is it actually causes you to hide who you really are or what you really think about things. And in fact, sometimes when we overanalyze too often, we can start to lie about what we really believe. Like imagine that you are sitting with a group of your non-Christian friends and the topic of, this, this is the topic of conversation. Should someone with same-sex attractions pursue a same-sex relationship? 
And I mean, a very real question in our culture right now. And all of your friends are talking about this and sharing their perspective. And then someone looks at you and says, hey, what do you think about that? What do you do? Do you really share what you think? Do you kind of share a compromised version of what you think? Do you lie? Do you just kind of go along with the flow? That's just one example. But this kind of thing happens all the time where we feel this anxiety about sharing what we really believe because we're worried about how people are going to think about us after we share it. We overanalyze. And so sometimes we actually hide, we actually lie. Also, overanalyzing can cause us to disobey what God is prompting us to do. I can't tell you how many times God has laid it on my heart to share my faith with someone and I didn't do it because I overanalyzed the situation. I was worried about what they would th- that person would think about me. And really, overanalyzing is just fighting to remain in control of people's perceptions of me. It's really a, it's a fight for control. It's trying to make sure that I am firmly in control of how you think about me and how you think about me and how you think about me and how you think about me. And really, what it does is it causes you to stop focusing and thinking about what God is thinking and spend all of your time and energy on what other people are thinking. So overanalyzing is one way that we can, um, is one negative thing that, is one negative outcome from caring too much about what other people think. Second one, however, I call it overcompensating. And overcompensating is this, putting forth an illogical amount of time and energy to prove that I'm not ashamed. So maybe you know some overcompensators. These are the people, whenever they hear or see that another person disagrees with something that they believe in, they feel this like compulsive duty to make sure the person clearly knows that they think that they are wrong. It's the person that no matter what you say, they can twist it and turn it into some like divisive political issue. It's like any status they read, they can find a way to argue about something on social media, any social media status they read, they can find a way to argue about it. So these are the people that at family reunions, everybody kind of knows what topics not to bring up because (laughs) if that topic gets brought up, that person's going to go off. Also, uh, overcompensators, they, like I kind of mentioned, they're the ones on social media where they're arguing with all of their friends and they're arguing with all of their friends, friends, and their friends, friends, friends. Like anything that they can start arguing about on Facebook, they argue about because they are proving that they are not ashamed of what they believe. Also, uh, they, you might find an overcompensator driving a car that is like littered with bumper stickers. Like every political view, every religious view, every view they have, just like, nah, I'm just kind of being funny there, but if bumper stickers are okay, okay? Um, and their friends, you know, their friends know, okay, the overcompensators, when we're hanging out, don't bring up that topic because it's going to trigger so-and-so. Here's the thing about overcompensators. Overcompensating is really just another version of caring what, about what people think. They are trying so hard to prove 
that they don't care about what other people think because they actually care about what other people think. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing with somebody, but it's like that compulsive, it's like that compulsive duty where no matter what, if I think you're disagreeing with something that I believe, I have to make sure I let you know. I can't stand to know that you might be thinking about something differently than I'm thinking about it. It looks like it's solving the problem of being ashamed, but it's not getting at the root because we said the root is I care too much about what other people think. And this was really the problem of the Pharisees. Jesus told the Pharisees, hey, you guys clean the outside of the cup and you make sure that it looks beautiful, but on the inside, it's filthy and dirty and gross. What's he saying there? He's saying, hey, the way that you are presenting yourself makes it look like you're righteous, but you're really evil in your heart and evil at the core. Now, I'm not saying you're evil if, you're, if you struggle with overcompensating. I've been there before too. But here's what I am saying. We can, because we maybe are so vocal about what we believe, or maybe I'm just, because I'm always sharing about Jesus and arguing with everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, I can think that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And maybe in my actions I am, but in my heart, I still am overly concerned about what other people think and not thinking enough about what God thinks. Because if I was thinking about what God thinks, I would treat those people with love, care, and respect. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 13 that we read. This is kind of like, how do the overcompensators stop overcompensating? In verse 13, he says this, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So actually, the first half of that verse is like the overcompensator's mantra. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. But then usually the part that gets skipped is in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. What's he saying there? He's saying, yeah, hold to the truth. Paul's saying, retain that that standard of sound teaching. Hold to what you know is true about Jesus and God and the gospel, but do it in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Do it with love towards the person and faith that they are gonna actually come to see what you see. Have faith that they're actually going to be able to understand you and see the validity in what you're saying. And a lot of times when we're arguing with people, we have zero faith that they're actually going to change their mind. And so then my question is, why are we still arguing with them? If we have no faith that somebody is going to come to see things the way that we see them, why are we still arguing? And I think that when we have lost that, when we've lost that love and we've lost that faith that that person might come to see the truth, we're no longer arguing with God's heart. We're just arguing to prove our own point, to prove something to our own ego. And so we have to... Um, Our job is to love those that disagree with us and have an expectation of change that they will come and they will see the truth. And Paul actually addresses this in more detail a chapter later. So we're going to get to it in a couple weeks, but we're going to do a sneak peek of 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25 right now. That verse says this, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. 
get this, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Right there, Paul is giving the blueprint for how to disagree with somebody in love. First thing he says is don't be quarrelsome. Quarrelsome people, this is what they do. They react to what you're not saying. When I'm being quarrelsome, I am reacting and and responding to what you're not saying, but what I'm interpreting that you are saying. These, These are the people where no matter what you say, they can twist your words to pull you into an argument about something that they feel passionate about. It's like I am, and then what really they're doing is they're not listening. When I'm being quarrelsome, I'm not listening to hear your heart. I'm not listening to you to really understand what you're saying. I'm listening to you so that I can hear, so that I can argue with what you're saying and bring up what I'm actually really passionate about. So don't be quarrelsome. Don't react to what you think they're saying. Really listen to what a person is saying and respond to what they're actually saying. Give people the benefit of the doubt in that maybe what you just said might sound like something that might contradict something I believe, but I'm gonna assume that there's something really good in what you believe, and I'm gonna listen to you and really try to mine that out and really try to understand what that is until I maybe disagree with you. So don't be quarrelsome. Don't react to what another person isn't saying. Second thing that Paul said in that verse we read is be kind. Be kind. Don't turn your love off when you're disagreeing with somebody. What do I mean by don't turn your love off? Well, do you need to raise your voice? Does that usually help a disagreement? I know that sometimes when my wife Jamie and I are in a disagreement, usually we'll, be, we'll start off sitting like on way opposite ends of the room and then we'll kind of slowly be getting closer to each other as the disagreement goes along. But why do we do that? Why do we uh, turn our love off when we disagree with someone? Why do we show them less love just because we disagree? Do we really need to, turn, do we really need to stop being kind because, I di- because we disagree with each other? I don't think so. Third thing Paul says is be patient. So I love the words from James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's what it looks like to be patient with someone is let's, I'm really going to focus on listening to you at first. I have a lot of things I want to say. You're making comments. You're saying things that are triggering emotional responses in me. They're causing things that I'm passionate about to rise up. But first, before I share what I'm passionate about, I'm going to listen. I'm going to be quick to listen to what you're saying and understanding what you're saying. And then maybe I will speak. And then slow to become angry. Also, slow to become defensive. If you want to be patient with someone, if you want to disagree with someone, well, you got to be slow to become defensive. Because when you're defensive... You're no longer trying to understand what they're saying. You're only trying to defend what you believe. Then finally, Paul says, be gentle. Don't be harsh. Don't be cutting. You know, sometimes in disagreements, we can make these like really exaggerated hyperbolic statements 
that can be kind of harsh and cutting and abrasive to a person that we don't need to make those when we disagree with someone. I don't need to be harsh. I don't need to be cutting. I don't need to say something that really kind of bullies what you believe just because we disagree. I can still disagree in gentleness. And that's what Paul says. He says, correct those who are in opposition with you with gentleness. So if overcompensating is something that you struggle with, what I just want to tell you is that in those moments where you feel that compulsive duty to disprove what another person is saying, instead, ask God what he thinks about the issue and what he thinks about the situation. And he will help you not disagree um, in a bad way. But what about the overanalyzers? What about the people who are trying to control what everyone thinks about them? What about the people that are imagining the worst case scenario? What about people that are plagued with anxiety about what other people think? Well, going back to verse 12, Paul says this, I'm not ashamed because I know in whom I have believed. I'm not ashamed because I know Jesus. I'm not ashamed because I know my heavenly father. Jesus in Matthew 6, he's talking about this same kind of topic. He's talking about anxiety in general, but the principles that he's talking about in Matthew 6 apply to what we're talking about, which is anxiety specifically around what other people think about me. So in Matthew 6, verse 31 and 32, Paul, or not Paul, Jesus says this. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. So Jesus is saying, hey, stop being so anxious about all of these needs that you have. um, Pagans or people that are not the people of God, they eagerly search and run after these things because they don't have a heavenly father who loves them and is gonna provide for them. In the same way, we don't need to be so stressed out and anxious about what other people think about us because we've got a heavenly father. We got a a God who loves us and is for us and is fighting for us. I love Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14 in the Passion Translation. Let's read this. You formed my innermost being, shaping my delicate inside and my intricate outside and wove them all together in my mother's womb. I thank you, God, for making me so mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It simply amazes me to think about it, how thoroughly you know me, Lord. When you know that you are absolutely adored by your heavenly father, you don't stress out about what people think about you. When you know how much God loves you, it's not really a thing. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not ashamed because I know whom who I've believed. And so people, really what we're talking about here are people who know their value. If you knew how much God loved you, you would know your value. And if you knew your value, you wouldn't hide who you really were due to other people's perceptions. And also, if you really knew your value, you wouldn't be so focused 
on what God is thinking, um, that you don't bother. And or you, if you knew your value, you, you would be so focused on what God is thinking about you that you wouldn't bother to worry about what other people are thinking. So then in Matthew 6, verse 33 and 34, Jesus finishes his thought when he says this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus here is telling them, hey guys, trust God and your needs will be met and you won't have this anxiety. And in the same way, what he's saying for any overanalyzers in the room is, hey, trust God with people's perceptions about you. Trust God that maybe when you say that thing, you're worried that they're gonna hate you for the rest of your life. Trust God that God is working in that person's heart so that they don't hate you for the rest of your life. Trust God that anything you say that might be misunderstood, he's already putting a plan in place to allow it so that that word doesn't hurt or harm anybody else. Trust God that he is working on your behalf and don't have anxiety about what other people think about you. Jesus also was saying, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough worries of itself. He's basically saying, hey, you can't control what's gonna happen tomorrow. So there's no, literally it's just, it's just dumb to worry about it. In the same way, we cannot control what other people think about us. And I am a classic overanalyzer and I try to make sure I can control what everyone thinks about me, but I'm still learning. You cannot do it. You just cannot remain in control about what people think about you. So really you've got two options. People are gonna think whatever they think about you. So you can either have anxiety about it or you cannot have anxiety about it. And you can just trust God that, hey, I know this person might think this if I really share what I believe. I know this person might do that if I really share my faith right now, but I'm just gonna trust him because that's all I can do. I love this verse in Second Chronicles. They are looking at this army, the Israelites are looking at this army coming against them and they say, Lord, we do not know how to handle this great multitude that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And that just should be a motto for all of us. I don't know what to do, Jesus, in this situation, but my eyes are on you. My eyes are on what you are thinking and what you are saying. So let go of the need to control how people perceive you. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. So really, freedom from overanalyzing, it's simple. Trust God more than yourself. Trust God more than yourself. When you feel yourself starting to stress out about what another, people th- uh, what another person thinks or another person is gonna do if you do this, just stop and ask him, God, give me your perspective on this situation. Let me know how you are thinking. I know they might think something, but I care more about what you're thinking than about what they are thinking. And so then in verse 14 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And the takeaway from that is we have to rely on God if we want to have any kind of sustained 
breakthrough from caring about what other people think. Go to God for strength, not your knowledge, not your experiences, not your money, not your position. Go to God, go to the Holy Spirit for strength and for the ability to trust God and to not have your life be run by other people's perceptions. We have to go to the Lord. So again, I want to ask you, what is the driving force in your life? Is it what God thinks or is it what other people think? And if um, there's too many times where it's, you see, you look back on your life and you see decisions you made or decisions you didn't make because you were worried about what other people were thinking about you. I want to encourage you, hey, it's okay. We've all been there. But God's um, invitation to you this morning is to take another step towards him in trusting him and caring more about what he thinks than about what people think. So with that said, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward so we can receive the offering. We already said this, but you can make checks payable to Vineyard Northwest. We've got giving boxes on the back wall if you would like to give there. If you would like to give over the app, that's a very easy way to give. It's personally how my wife Jamie and I give. And while we're receiving the offering, let's pray before we go into worship. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence here. I just ask in Jesus' name that any of us in the room right now who struggle with obsessing over what people are thinking about us, that you would just release freedom to our minds and to our hearts. That we would be so obsessed with what you think that we can't obsess over what other people think. And just be with us as we worship you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.